No, we've been looking at a lot of things, uh, new opportunities and possibilities for the coming year, and one of those possibilities has been this men's conference that we're looking at. It would happen in early February. We're looking at being a host site for that. And uh, the conference is named the No Regrets Men's Conference. I've been thinking about that a lot lately. I think I know what they mean. I've looked over enough of their materials, read enough of their stuff. I think I, think I know what they mean when they say no regrets. I think they mean that the, the more we live consistent with who Christ calls us to be, the fewer regrets that we will have. We'll look back on life and there won't be as many things that we wished we'd done or wished we'd done better. But uh, I have to be honest with you, I'm sort of bothered by this no, no regrets moniker. It, it shows up in our culture a lot. A lot of people claim to live without any regrets. Uh, that's sort of an ideal, it's a very popular notion in our society. And while I do think that aligning ourselves with God brings us closer to living a life without regret, the idea of living a life completely without regret, literally, is kind of silly and probably really unhealthy. Because regret simply means I acknowledge there's something I've done at some point that could have been better. Now, if I can't acknowledge that there's something at some point in my life that could have gone better, that I could have done better at, I'm either delusional or just not very self-aware. So this is not a very healthy way to function. Regret is actually a healthy part of our existence, coming to terms with the things that we regret, learning from the mistakes that we have made. Living a life with fewer regrets is an admirable goal. But regrets inform and shape who we are. I think sometimes the church has aligned itself with this cultural notion of living without any regrets. Uh, we, we sort of, maybe uh, not purposely, but we sort of present this idea that forgiveness from sin means the removal of all my regrets. The reality, of course, is that uh, while we do regret our sin and we enjoy the forgiveness that we receive in Jesus Christ from our sins, that doesn't necessarily remove the damage that our sins have done. And I confess to you this morning that I'm a man who lives with a lot of regret. I regret people that I hurt. I, I regret friends that I've lost touch with. I regret the times that, that uh, I didn't do something for somebody that I should have. I have regrets sometimes about the, the times that I wish I was a, a better dad or a better husband or a better businessman or a better preacher or a better person. I regret the times that I acted more out of fear than out of boldness. And I regret sometimes when I acted out of boldness instead of out of patience. I find that I don't want simply forgiveness of my sins. 
I really want Jesus to redeem my whole life, my whole existence. And then maybe I'd be something akin to living without regret. If he could just make sense of it all, if he could make it right. Here's the truth of living life in our fallen world. Life is in many ways a series of imperfect solutions to unforeseen problems with unintended consequences. That seems pretty bleak, doesn't it? But you're supposed to encourage us this morning. This is where we pick up our story. Reading in the book of Ezra, we're in chapter 7, where Ezra uh, first enters the story. The story, it's his book that has his name. We believe that he's the author, and yet he does not enter the story until chapter 7. He is a priest, he is a legal scholar in the law of Moses, and he is a teacher of the law. And he is commissioned by King Artaxerxes, who is the son of Xerxes, who we looked at last week. He is commissioned by Artaxerxes to continue this mission in Jerusalem, to go back and join the remnant that's already there, to continue the work on the temple, to make new sacrifices, to continue the reconstruction of the city, and to re-educate the people about the law of Moses. And not only uh, about the spiritual law, the religious law, but also to create some civic law and order for this uh, remnant of, of Israel. And so we read in Ezra chapter 7, verse 27 and 28, Ezra says, Praise be to the Lord, the God of our ancestors, who has put into the king's heart to bring honor to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem in this way, and who has extended his good favor to me before the king and his advisors and all the king's powerful officials. Because the hand of the Lord my God was on me, I took courage and gathered leaders from Israel to go up with me. Now, from this point on in the story, Ezra essentially relates to us his account of all the unforeseen problems that emerge. The first of those problems is he gets together with this group of people that's agreed to go back, and it's a much smaller group than the first group. He gets together with this group of people, he looks around, and there are no Levites. Now, if you don't understand the significance of that, the Levites are basically the ones who do all the work around the temple. It, the priests don't do all the work, it's the Levites. The priests oversee all sort of the religious activities, but it's the Levites who make sure all the work of the temple gets done. And so if you want to send out a refresher group to the mission, you need to make sure that you have Levites with you. So he tells this story about how he sends word back, and he says, hey, guys, come on, we've got to have some Levites. And so he gets some volunteers recruited, and they get together for that. Then his next problem is the king has provided them with a pretty serious fortune. He's sending them with a, a, a lot of gold and silver and different things for the temple. There's only a couple thousand of them. And I know that, that may sound like a lot, but you think about it, the first group is forty-five to 50,000 people. When they're traveling across the wilderness with that first fortune that they received from King Cyrus, they're in a pretty good position to protect that fortune on the journey. 
If you have 2,000 people in your group and you're traveling through foreign nations, foreign wilderness, you're a little more vulnerable. And Ezra acknowledges that he's kind of talked himself into a corner because he told King Artaxerxes, he said, I told the king that our God watches out for us. I told him that he, he would be taking care of us. And because I told him that, really reluctant to go back to him and ask for an armed escort to get us to Jerusalem. So instead, they pray. They fast and they pray and they ask for God's protection. And Ezra says God provided that protection. They also do something on a practical level. They take this treasure, divide it up 12 ways, and they distribute it and so that none of the treasure is held by any one family. These are their first two, two big problems that they encounter. So they arrive in Jerusalem. They bring, everybody brings their treasures to the temple. They do an accounting, make sure none of it got lost along the way. And everybody was pretty honest. Everything shows up. It's, everything's accounted for. And then they, um, they make sacrifices. And remember, the people in, in captivity, the people in exile, haven't been able to make sacrifices all this time. And so they've been waiting for this opportunity to be back at the temple in Jerusalem so they can make sacrifices. So they make a bunch of them. They make sacrifices. And then, after this point in the story, begins one of the strangest and most frustrating narratives in all of Scripture. And I think what it illustrates is this. The human contribution to divine mission is often an imperfect solution. Remember that God is constantly bringing together his divine mission with our humanity. He's always involving us in his plan. He's always using us as part of the plan. But the reality of it is the human part of that equation often comes up with human sort of imperfect solutions to divine problems. The context here, remember Ezra arrives here to teach the law to the people. Make sure that they've got this down. Make sure they understand how to be faithful to God. And the very first notice he gets, the very first report he receives is this. The people have intermarried with surrounding tribes. And not just common folk, but the leaders of the people have intermarried with these surrounding tribes. And this is prohibited by the law of Moses. Now, we probably wouldn't be all that surprised by this, right? There's 50 some odd thousand people who make their way back to Jerusalem. The dating pool is a little shallow. So they start looking around and they find wives for themselves and for their sons from these foreign nations. The problem is these foreign nations are idolatrous and have been for generations. And this has been the perpetual problem that Israel has had. They get involved. They get over-related with these folks, and they begin to adopt 
their idolatry. They are, as Scripture says, they'll be turned away to idolatry by marrying into these other cultures. This is exactly how the people ended up in exile in the first place, and Ezra knows this. And so Ezra, as soon as he hears this, he tears his clothes, he starts pulling out his hair, he's very dramatic about the whole thing, he's weeping and wailing, and he's praying, and he's lamenting and mourning. He says, says essentially to God, he says, look, look at us, God. This is exactly why we were exiled in the first place, and yet you have been faithful to us, so faithful that you've allowed this remnant to return at this time and place to rebuild your temple, to rebuild your city. And then here we go again. We're doing the same stuff. The same stuff that got us into trouble. The same stuff that created the problem to begin with. Here we go again. And so he says in chapter 9, verse 14, he says, Shall we then break your commands again and intermarry with the peoples who commit such detestable practices? Would you not be angry enough with us to destroy us, leaving us no remnant or survivor? Lord, the God of Israel, you are righteous. We are left this day as a remnant. Here we are before you in our guilt, though because of it not one of us can stand in your presence. I think one of the things we have to take away from this is that an uncertain mission often results in a moral compromise. This has been a very consistent problem, a consistent issue for Israel, but it's particularly dire under the circumstances that they have here. They are a nation in Jerusalem numbering in the tens of thousands, surrounded by tribes of hundreds of thousands, if not millions. If they allow themselves, as they so often did in the past, to be sucked into the idolatry of the surrounding nations, their identity will quickly be swallowed up. They will disappear into the cultural backdrop. This is a bit of a commentary on our humanity. Remember that initially, this is the same group of people that when they were approached by other tribes who were offering to help with the temple, they said, oh no, we must do this and we must do it ourselves. We have to keep this pure. Well, it takes 15 years to get around to building the temple. And then another 50 years passes. Somewhere in that interim, they lose that passion. They lose that zeal. They're no longer focused on the mission. And they kind of lose their way. And Ezra, hearing this, is completely devastated. He's not only devastated, but if you read the words of his prayer to God, he is at an impasse. What can we do? This is the situation that we have. These folks have done this thing. It's the exact thing that got us into trouble before. And yet here we are, standing before you, unworthy once again. He doesn't know what to do. Well, he's approached with someone who has an idea. So in Ezra 10, 
verse 1, when Ezra was praying and confessing, weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God, a large crowd of Israelites, men, women, and children, gathered around him. They too wept bitterly. Then Shechaniah, son of Jehael, one of the descendants of Elam, said to Ezra, We have been unfaithful to God by marrying foreign women from the peoples around us, but in spite of this, there's still hope for Israel. Now let us make a covenant before our God to send away all of these women and their children in accordance with the counsel of my Lord and those who fear the commands of our God. Let it be done according to the law. Rise up. This matter is in your hands. We will support you, so take courage and do it. So here's the great plan. We're going to divorce our wives. We're going to send them and their children away. Because we have been conditioned to read the Old Testament as a set of moral stories, we are often tempted to think that everything that happens is a moral imperative. What I think is interesting is that Ezra relates this story and though he is uh, the author, he doesn't offer us much of a defense for his action. He makes no claim that he has spoken to God about this and he is absolutely clear that the idea came from somebody else. I think he's passing the buck. One of the things that we have to understand, particularly as we, uh, not only as we read scripture, but as we make our way through our lives, one of the things we have to understand is that not everything that happens is God's will. I know you've had this conversation with people before. You, some initiative that you're involved in, some project, some idea that you have completely falls flat, and someone, meaning to be encouraging, says, well, it, it must just not have been God's will. Now, there are times when God shuts a door that he doesn't want us to go through. But the truth is, a lot of things that happen in this world are not God's will. That's sort of the nature of living in a fallen world. As a matter of fact, that's why it's a fallen world. Because a lot of stuff that happens here is not God's will. And so when we begin with this assumption that everything in the present is going to ultimately reflect God's will, we end up with a lot of broken ideas. Because God's will will be done ultimately. But in the present... As we live in this fallen and broken world, there will be an awful lot of times when God's will is not done. Maybe, maybe this is just a terrible solution to a terrible problem. Whoa, there we go. I read an awful lot of comments. I read a lot of commentary on this, trying to sort through it. And what I read was an awful lot of guys trying to justify what Ezra does here. 
Uh, you know, it was, it was a bad situation, but it was the lesser of two evils. Uh, okay. Clearly, this only applies to the Old Testament and not the New Testament. Things have changed. Well, okay. Maybe. Maybe they had a bad situation, and they made a bad choice about how to fix it. I don't know what the right answer is. I don't know what they should have done in this situation. But if we look to what their prophets were actually saying, if we read through Malachi, who is the prophet in this era, Malachi complains to the people that they have broken covenant with God. And here's the interesting thing. He says, you have profaned Israel with idolatry because you have married into idolatrous nations. But he doesn't say, divorce these wives and send them away. Actually, what he says is, those who've done this, send them away. Kick the men out of your camp who made this choice, who made this error. Kick them out of the tribes of Jacob. And then he says, not incidentally, by the way, God really hates divorce. Don't know if we mentioned it before. He really doesn't care for that. So is this solution, is this solution that they arrive at, is it the right one? Or is it just an imperfect solution to a really bad problem? God, however, continues to work through our brokenness. Now I know that some of my fellow preachers and theologians out there have uh, attempted to take stories like this and come up with a doctrine of divorce uh, based on these passages. I kind of think that misses the entire point. I think the point of the story is this. The people take two wrongs and try to make a right. They take a mess that they have created and they compound it with another mess. And in spite of it all, God is faithful. I think that's the moral of the story. God is faithful. We come up with imperfect solutions to desperate problems and God is faithful. Jesus himself said, in the past, God permitted divorce out of your, because of your hardness of heart. But that's not the way, he says, that's not the way it was from the beginning. That's not the created order. It's not the way God meant it to be. And Paul says, if you're wed to an unbeliever, you remain faithful to Christ. And you do everything within your power to win your mate to Christ. Because we live in a fallen world, the will of God will not always be done. Imperfection is our reality. And when we, as human beings, are addressing imperfections in our world, we often bring imperfect solutions. But as kingdom people, we are always working towards the perfection of kingdom. We always want to get better at it. 
We always want to be closer to God's will. And for believers, God's perfect will is an ongoing pursuit. It's something that we just keep trucking on. We keep working towards. We won't achieve it in this lifetime. There will be times we won't even comprehend what it is. But we will take one step at a time. When we lose our sight of it, when we stop seeking it, we will very quickly lose our way. The future, the future in our human lifetimes is no guarantee that the will of God will be done, and the past is no authority that the will of God has been done. We can only be faithful. We can only learn from our mistakes. We can only commit ourselves day after day and step after step to grow closer to Jesus Christ and closer to his perfect will. That's really our intent in asking you to review and consider new bylaws for this congregation. Just the way that Ezra is commissioned to, to teach the law, but also to institute law and order for Jerusalem, church leadership is often required to sort of balance spiritual objectives with civic leadership. Now, for those of you who don't know, bylaws are basically just an internal organizational set of policies. In the grand scheme of things, they're not all that important. I know we have often treated them like they are, but really not. We worry about what the state will say about them. The state really doesn't care. They exist only to sort of guide our internal processes. So, why are we even bringing it up? Why am I talking to you about it now? What does it even matter? Well, bylaws being an internal guideline for an incorporated body are by their nature an imperfect solution. They, the bylaws that we've had have been an imperfect solution and probably the bylaws that we've generated now for your review ultimately will be found to be an imperfect solution. But we recognize a need to address some changes in the world around us. The world around us is, keeps trying to redefine everything. And so suddenly our definition of uh, our definition of marriage, our definition of gender, our definition of uh, identity, things that we didn't think were really all that debatable, have suddenly become debatable. And so we have been counseled to clarify these things for the purpose of our legal protection. We need to address changes in our functionality, which basically means that the leadership of this congregation doesn't operate the way that the bylaws dictate. We haven't for a long time. And so really, in a sense, what we're doing is bringing the bylaws up to date with how we presently function. And so that people can see how we function, understand why we function that way, uh, and that it's clear. 
and to address an unintended consequence of our existing bylaw structure. Our existing bylaws identify the New Testament as the only authority for our operation, and yet then it inadvertently sets up a civic process for bypassing that spiritual authority. I don't think it was intended to do that, but it definitely has done that. And at times, some people have used that civic process to completely bypass church leadership in order to get what they wanted. We wanted to change that. Invariably, in any uh, religious organization where bylaws are a priority, there are people who can quote those bylaws more than they can quote scripture. We don't want it to be that important anymore, but we do want it to be honest. Here's what it comes down to, whether it be this issue or any other. Practical matters are subservient to spiritual imperatives. It is important that we clarify our purpose, that we clarify our process, Ultimately, it's just a human document. It's just an imperfect solution to an imperfect world. What we really want to do is get closer to Christ. What we really want to do is get closer to Scripture. So we're asking you to review and next week to actually vote on this. And really what we're asking you to vote on is, do I believe this is consistent with Scripture? simple as that. We want to welcome you to understand our operations, welcome you to understand the process by which we have arrived at what we do and how we do it, to question that process. Ultimately, we invite you to consider whether these things are scriptural, whether or not they adhere to the authority of Jesus Christ, because ultimately, for this and for every single piece of our mission moving forward, that is the only thing that matters.